Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Todd Rose, a best-selling author, scholar, and think tank founder who combines his scientific training with sociological insights to grapple with many of the big questions facing modern society. His latest book is a case in point, Collective Illusions, Conformity, Complicity, and the Science of Why We Make Bad Decisions, explores how our desire to fit in can create misunderstandings and lead entire groups down paths they never wanted to go in the first place. I'm grateful to speak with him about the sources of these collective illusions, their consequences, and what we can do to see things more clearly. Todd, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be with you. Let's start with a question about your personal bio, if that's okay. Your path to becoming a Harvard professor isn't a conventional one. How did you go from being a high school dropout to teaching at one of the world's most prestigious universities? And perhaps more importantly, how has that experience shaped your insights reflected in the book? Yeah, no, like, so my, the, the sort of short version of it was, you know, I grew up in rural America and, um, you know, had so a lot, lot going for it, but grew up in a place that prized conformity above almost everything else. And it didn't really, was not going to work with my personality and, you know, had a really hard time in school. Like, you know, when you do poorly one year, it tends to snowball and it culminated in me, um, Filling out of high school early in my senior year with a 0.9 GPA. And shortly thereafter, my girlfriend um, found out she was pregnant. And so, we, you know, and, uh, we're still married today. It's uh, just just over 29th anniversary. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and so, so ended up uh, on welfare within a couple of years. We had two kids. Um, I was bouncing around a bunch of minimum wage jobs. Uh, you know, and luckily, mainly because I didn't want to ruin my ch- my young children's lives, <laughs> had to do something else, and um, decided to get my GED. And I I didn't really know where I wanted to end up. I just knew where I was wasn't working. So I ended up enrolling in night school at a local university, Weber State University in Ogden, Utah. And it was there that I found myself, um, and we can talk about that if you'd like, but, but it, you know, learning who I really was, that I actually was decent at learning and came to appreciate, uh, through a series of experiences, my own individuality and how, how much it mattered that I found a good fit between that and the environment that I was in. And when I got that right, I seemed to be as good as anybody else at at just about anything when I didn't. I struggled. And that experience uh, really was formative for me in the sense that 
not only did it propel me, I ended up graduating with a 3.97 GPA and got into Harvard for my doctorate. But I didn't quite appreciate it at the time, but it ended up shaping how I thought about myself, but also about other people, human potential, um, all the stuff that would go on to define most of my scientific work. To that point, a central idea in the book is that we have a private and public self. The notion may be somewhat intuitive to people. We've all been nice to someone and then complained about them behind their back. But you're making a far deeper point here. How should we think about the differences between our private and public self? And why do these differences matter so much in your story? Yeah, so so look, it's what's really important here is in an ideal world, you know, most of the psychological research I'm familiar with suggests that it's really important that we strive to have our public and private selves be as close as possible, right? This idea of like congruence, which, you know, a lot of the positive psychologists would suggest is a critical necessary step toward um, flourishing and self-actualization. So if that's the case, it sort of begs the question of like, why, why are they so different and what drives those differences? And, you know, for me, being trained in neuroscience, it, it was pretty obvious that we are a hyper-social species. You know, I mean, humans have evolved not to be lone wolves. And so we, we have, our brains are super sensitive to social learning. Um, you know, being, we prefer to be with our groups, not against our groups. So we have that sort of conformity bias. And the problem is, is that you know, you end up having a private self that has your own preferences and aspirations, but you're keenly aware, or you, at least you think you are, of what the groups that you care the most about believe, think, aspire to. Um, and so there's that tug of war between who I might be in private or who I think I am and who I believe I'm supposed to be as I show up in the roles I play in the groups I belong to. A related point to this conversation thus far is our tendency to want to copy those around us. Where does that come from, Todd? How much of it is a sociological instinct versus a neurological or even evolutionary one? So, you know, it's funny because I'm someone who would like to think that I don't conform, um, which is just not true. As human beings, we are hardwired to have a conformity bias. It just sounds bad. But in fact, most of the time, it's spectacularly good. So we've evolved. You think about like, Part of this is just social learning. If I, I can either learn everything the hard way through trial and error, um, or I can watch you and be like, wow, that was really dumb, or, or that was smart. Maybe I'll just copy that, right? And so, you know, th th this almost silly, obvious example is, you know, if I'm in some other country and I'm like, I'm hungry and I'm lost in the wilderness and the people I'm with are like, don't eat those red berries, they're poisonous. Well, just because red berries aren't poisonous where I'm from, it's probably smart to go ahead and say, these people must know, must know more <laughs> than I do. Um, and, and you can internalize that knowledge. So, you know, the conformity bias we have as a species has allowed us to learn from each other. It's what gives us culture, allows us to transmit um, knowledge generation to generation, and arguably is the reason human beings dominate the planet as a species. So that's the good part. Um, that, that we care that much and it buys us a lot. Uh, it, from a survival standpoint, it, it is way better to be part of a group <laughs> than, than all by yourself. So here, here's the problem and then we'll get to this idea of a collective illusion and where obviously 
blind conformity was never good, right? So just group think, lots of books been written about this and its problem. Collective illusions are a special case here, which used to be rare and are now quite common, where you're conforming to the group, but it turns out you're just wrong about the group to begin with. And so it's it's funny because the reason from a, a, a neurological standpoint that this happens is despite your bias to conformity, uh, you would imagine, well, you'd imagine given how much conformity is important, that would be really good at reading group consensus. But it turns out your brain uses a shortcut. And it's no kidding. Your brain assumes the loudest voices repeated the most are the majority. And, I, you know, you could imagine that in, in the days where we were like in groups of like 100 or something, that probably worked pretty well. It must have, right? Or we wouldn't have evolved for that. But now you take that that shortcut of group estimation into a, an age of social media <laughs> where it's, you know, the democratizing tendency of social media is its upside. But the fact that it empowers everybody with a voice can also be the problem. And, and here, here's the example. If you just take Twitter alone, so 80% of all content on Twitter is generated by only 10% of the users. And in the States, at least from the research I've seen, those 10% are not remotely representative of the broader population. They tend to be more extreme on almost every social issue. But, okay, you can see the problem then. If, if only 10% of people believe something or hold of you, but you think it's 80%, then your brain's like, well, that's the majority. And unless I'm willing to go against what I think the majority is, then I'm going to just either self-silence or I'm going to actually outright lie and just go along with what everybody's saying. Um, and then the, the truth is, then what happens is the only voice that anyone hears from is, is the fringe. And the results is collective illusion. And just for the audience, just to put a formal definition on it, when you get to this place of a collective illusion, it's this phenomenon where, you know, most people in a group privately disagree with some idea or choice, but they end up going along with it because they incorrectly think that most people in the group agree with it. And so the whole groups end up doing something that almost nobody wanted. Um, and so I'll just end this part by saying, you know, that phenomenon, we've known about collective illusions in research for about 100 years. And if you go back to like the parables like emperors and you know, clothes and stuff, we, we've at least known about it for quite a while. It wasn't until, you know, this age of social media where they just exploded. They used to be so rare that it was almost, they were just academic phenomenon. And now they're just everywhere. And so it's become, I think, the, the single biggest invisible threat to democracies, frankly. There's just so much there to unpack. Let's take up your observations about the rise of collective illusions and how they're influencing us individually and collectively. How do they typically take root and how do they come to influence our public and private selves. Yeah, so they, they take root, if we start back what I was talking about just before, which is, you know, you'd like to think that it, it requires like a bad actor or somebody manipulating us. But while that can be true, most of the time, it's just that product of, of our individual desire to conform and our somewhat flawed shortcut for estimating group consensus. When, when that biology interacts with this particular technology, it's very easy without any bad actor or 
nefarious intent for a very vocal fringe to end up being perceived as representing um, a bigger consensus than they do. And then because we have varying degrees of desire to conform, you know, if, I, if you might, you might say, look, I don't care who, who else thinks that I'm not going along. I might say, look, if it's the majority, I'm going to go with it. Some other people are like, listen, if there's just a squeaky will, a loud fringe, I don't want to put up with the sort of social threat that, you know, whatever. So we just end up cascading pretty quickly to where everyone's going along with it. And it does really feel like this is what we all believe. And so it's it's not terribly surprising that in an age of social media, these things are everywhere now where they weren't in the past. Because in the past, when they would when they would emerge, they were so they were basically constrained by the geography, if you will, right? Like you didn't have the technology that transcended place and time. And now we do. And so they're just so much easier. Uh, you know, someone in their parents' basement on on Instagram can actually have the chance to initiate these kind of illusions. And, you know, here we are. If I can ask a follow-up question, Todd, one of your previous books is called The End of Average. And I was thinking about that as I read the current one. How much will the ability for people to discern these collective illusions be kind of fundamental to their ability to compete in today's marketplace, both of ideas, but also in job markets and and so on? Oh, I think, look, I think it's critical. And I think there's two really important things about understanding this phenomenon and being able to deal with it. One at an individual level, the other at societal level. So at a societal level, you know, look, uh, my think tank populace has more private opinion data on the American public, at least, than probably anybody else. So we, we feel really confident. We, we, we understand where people are on a whole range of issues. And we know where these collective illusions are, or at least the ones we've looked at. The biggest societal consequence of collective illusions is false polarization. It's pretty crazy. I mean, if, whether you're in the States or you're looking at States, you think like the thing is we are so irreparably divided that you can't function, which is which is actually practically true right now. But when you look under the hood of it, it's pretty shocking. Like, like in the U.S., we're divided on some things like deeply. Like immigration is something that the U.S. is very privately divided on. But it pales in comparison to the number of places where when you get under the hood and look at private opinion, there's like a ridiculous amount of consensus. But it's because we are listening to the fringes, we don't believe that's true. And the problem is, is there's an old um, sociological phenomenon called the Thomas theorem, which basically means if people believe something to be true, it's true in its consequences. <laughs> so the fact that I think we're divided on all these things, I start to see other people as the enemy, right? As, as you don't share my values, you don't believe what I believe, you don't whatever. And, and here we are, we end up treating each other as though we are on opposite sides when in fact, it's not really true. So, and, and the reason that's important from a, collective standpoint is under collective illusions, we can talk about this a little bit later, how you deal with that problem is very different than how you deal with it if we genuinely are divided. And if you pick the wrong strategy, you can make it worse. So that's the collective side. And I think it, I think it explains a heck of a lot about what's going on in, in the world right now. Um, but at the individual level, if you think about, we, we have some really good research on 
I'll, I'll use one concrete example of, of the cost to you as a person. So we, we did the, one of the biggest studies ever on what people mean by a successful life. And we use, I think, some fun methodologies that get around social distortion, looked at 76 possible trade-off priorities you could have for a good life. So a couple of things that stood out. One, the biggest collective illusion we've ever found in anything had to do with when we asked people what they thought people would put as their top priority for a, a successful life, what other people would say. They thought that most people would say being famous was the most important thing to them. Rank it number one out of 76. In private, using methods you can't really game, it's actually ranked dead last. <laughs> like, dead last. So, you know, illusions don't get bigger than that. But from a personal standpoint, here's the, here's the fundamental problem. We measured not only people's trade-off priorities, but how well they were doing on them. And here's what we found. And we, and we we connected that to Gallup studies like life satisfaction. You know, there's like this a really simple, kind of elegant question around a ladder and where you put yourself. And ten being like my best life, and like zero being like <laughs> like the very worst. And it's actually well used all over the world and pretty predictive of a whole bunch of things you'd care about. So we actually correlated, like, okay, how how well does it correlate like your achievement on the things that you care about versus life satisfaction? Not surprisingly, it, it correlates quite strongly. So the extent to which you're achieving on your private values and priorities, in fact, like a 20-point increase in that translated to the equivalent increase in life satisfaction of giving someone a 50% pay increase. So it really does matter. This Conversely, no amount of achievement on what you think other people see as success translates into higher life satisfaction at all. So. Think about right now, we're all trying to live these lives and we think we know what we care about, but we're also filled this tug to like be something we're not or say things we don't really believe. It's destroying your congruence, which actually has all kinds of consequences for you, including physiologically, but it also puts you on a path of a pretty hollow and empty life. And so the truth is, is in, in our economy today and in society in general, your best bet is to know who you are, know what you're good at, know what you care about, and convert that into something that can be fulfilling for you and a contribution to everybody else. If we're all chasing the same illusions about what we should be doing and believing and saying, you get this weird place where it's both groupthink, which is never good, but it actually was never true to begin with. So you're also destroying the very group that you care so much about. So for all those reasons, and even more, these we have to understand that collective illusions are a phenomenon, that they affect you personally if you don't understand them, and that they can destroy free societies if you don't do something about them. Why are we so bad at discerning what people with similar values and experiences and perspectives as we have actually believe? Well, if you think about it, especially with values, I don't know. I, I can't read your mind. So I know what I think. I know what I believe I value. I can only infer your values and priorities based on your uh, behavior, the choices you make. So it's funny. Um, consistently, we have this bias where, let's say, for example, I know that I'm going to some protest because I believe I'm supposed to. Like, like we're supposed to. I'm going to show up because I feel pressure if I don't show up and do the thing, whatever it is. Um, 
So I go along, but I know for me, I'm only doing it because I feel pressure and I don't really believe it. But I see you at the same protest and it's weird. You'd think I would give you the same benefit of the doubt, <laughs> but it's just not how it works. I just assume your behavior is like a one-to-one reflection of your private beliefs and values. It, it's obviously not, but, or not always. And so what happens is, is I'll see your behavior and I'm like, well, Sean believes it. So obviously I'm right that this is what most people think. So I'll keep going along. But of course, me showing up is telling you the same thing. (laughs) And so it's just, we're just not very good at it. And I think, you know, it's funny, if you look at the history of, of technology, and how it influences society's big societal changing technologies, there's always some upside, there's a lot of downside, and it almost always requires that we acquire a new skill or mindset to make the trade-off worth it. So for example, go all the way back to going from uh, oral tradition to the written word. You know, Socrates, if you was like, oh, this is terrible, right? It's going to ruin memory. And if, if, if reciting Homer verbatim is, is losing memory, that's probably true. It did. But you could intuitively sense that like writing it all down seemed like it had a huge upside. But of course, the only way that that trade-off was worth it is if you recognize there was a new artificial skill called literacy that you had to acquire. And, and the elites hoarded that skill arguably till the Reformation in the West. <laughs> it took like an act of God, if you will, to democratize that. And as long as I didn't have that skill, I was way better off without the technology. I was way better off in oral tradition because we could actually share that knowledge in a way we couldn't. I couldn't access it. I believe that our social technologies have enormous upside. But what, we're, what we didn't fully appreciate is that their dynamics enable the, a house of mirrors that warps forever our brain's ability to accurately estimate group consensus. And so our, our historical and evolutionary bias toward conformity becomes this pure downside. Now, like, and you have to get, I believe the skill we have to acquire is that recognition, that understanding that we can no longer trust our brains to tell us what our groups think. And if that's true, then we've entered a very interesting age now where if all you cared about was belonging and being part of the group, the most important thing that you could do is be honest about what you believe to the group. As your odds are, you're they probably agree with you, right? And, and if you don't do that, if you aren't honest with other group members, you put at risk the entire group. And, and obviously that comes with, uh, to make that new skill something that we all can practice, it means doubling down on liberal values like diverse opinions and pluralism and a commitment to free speech, right? That sadly is under threat right now. And so- here we are, and that's where I think, like, right now, most people have no idea about the phenomenon of a collective illusion. And it's why I wrote the book, because it's like, if you don't know, why would you ever think your brain is lying to you? <laughs> You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest 
Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. In these circumstances, as you say, Todd, there are different reactions available to us. Uh, One that you document in the book is self-silencing, which I'll, I'll ask about in a minute. Another is something called preference falsification. What does that mean? How does it work? Do we really come to change our own views? Yeah, so this is this is pretty frightening. It's like, yeah, so faced with the idea that my private views differ from the group that matters to me, I have a few options, right? I can I can push back. I can try to argue with the group, but that that you wouldn't be in this situation if that was your default view. Um, you can try to hide and just say nothing, which like actually in the US we've got good research showing a majority of Americans admit that they just they just don't speak up anymore because it's like, I don't feel a lot of threat. I just don't want to like cause problems. I'll just keep my head down, right? Um, but again, just retreating to the sidelines of self-silencing, you haven't you haven't lied, but what you've done is left the field, if you will, the, the marketplace of ideas. So we're only ever hearing from the fringes. So it, it actually amplifies their voice by default. This last one, which is the most insidious, is especially when the fringe is is threatening economic, social, or sometimes physical, usually not in democracies, you're not supposed to threaten people's lives. And, but um, but if, if there is a sense of coercion and, and social pressure um, that I could be ostracized for having the wrong view, um, it's not enough to say nothing, right? These fringes will want you to actually say what they want you to say. Or, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not a huge fan. I think we overstate cancel culture in some ways. Um, it's real, but I don't think, I think it's a, a boogeyman sometimes that, that we use. Here's a case where it is in play, which is the threat of economic sanction for having the wrong view means I can't just say nothing, right? Especially in an era where like silence is violence or whatever. Okay, look, so I can't just say I don't want to have an opinion right now. And I know there's a right opinion. I have to say it. Well, the problem is, and, and this is what economists come up with these words, which they're not, they're not, the, they're so smart usually, but they're not good at naming things. <laughs> but preference <laughs> falsification by a brilliant person um, called Timur Curran, who came up with that idea, which is, I feel so either I want the reward for being aligned with the group, or I want to avoid the sanctioning for going against the group. So I can't say nothing. I have to say something. And people will just outright lie. They will say the opposite of what they believe for those reasons. And the reason this is particularly problematic is when the very people who are against the idea are publicly behind it, it becomes so entrenched, right? It's one thing to be like, I don't know if I'm hearing from everyone. But I'm like, no, Sean's telling me. I would have thought for sure Sean begins to, but here he is. He's he's backing it. I'm like, we all must really agree with this. But it gets worse than that because when you lie about your private views, you get what's called cognitive dissonance, right? Pretty, pretty classic uh, psychological phenomenon where you can't live in that sort of error state very long. So something has to give. And you could either 
sort of come back and say, okay, you know what? I was lying. Let me change my view. But why would you do that? Like if you had that courage, you wouldn't have lied in the first place. So, um, so usually what we do is we actually end up revising our belief system to bring it in line with our behavior over time, which is pretty scary. And what's even worse is that very good research documenting that when you look at people who are enforcing, you know, enforcing, you, know, you better say the right thing. It is actually significantly more likely that those are people who don't privately believe the, the thing. True believers don't need to twist your arm, right? They just don't. It's once I've lied, I start to think, well, you, you probably know that I'm lying. This illusion of transparency. Oh, no, you're going to find me out. So I end up doubling down and becoming the enforcer of the bad idea. That's why, that's why, like, at this point, especially in the U.S., every time I see a, an evangelical leader who's vocally anti-gay, I'm like, that dude's probably gay. <laughs> like, at this point, it's almost caricature of this thing. Um, and so the, the, you might think, but like, how likely is it that we're lying that, to that extent? Well, uh, folks can go to our, our website, populist.org. We did um, last year in the U.S., we used a, a, another methodology that can get around when people are lying about a view. There, there, it's, it's called list experiment. It's very clever. We didn't invent it. That's why I can say it's clever. <laughs> um, and we actually looked at 25 incredibly sensitive issues that, that we knew were polarizing in the country, everything from abortion to trans rights and those kind of things, right? And it, the results were just, I mean, shocking. It's everybody. Every demographic, no matter how you cut the data, is lying about multiple issues in the aggregate. They're just lying about different issues. And so you look at this and think, holy cow, it's not just that we're on the sidelines. It's that we feel compelled to actually misrepresent our views to each other. So no wonder we have a huge problem. Uh, and again, um, under preference falsification and the collective illusions that it creates and sustains, the way out of this isn't more persuasion, it's social proof. And so we've got to understand the root of the problem if we're going to actually solve it. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. You mentioned the polling work that Populous has done on a series of hot button issues like abortion, as you mentioned, COVID restrictions and so on. What's striking is that, as you say, Todd, that both the left and the right are actually more moderate than what we tend to say publicly, that even in a country like the United States, which is you know, in which the notion of polarization is such a common way to think and talk about American politics, that most people are converging towards a political mean. Does this mean that a centrist politics is underrepresented in the United States and a centrist politician could actually perform well in, say, a presidential election? Or do you think our instinct to conform would, would actually stand in the way? So that's the problem, right? So it's sort of yes to both of them, believe it or not, right? So the not surprisingly, um, when people want to manipulate systems um, to, to manufacture consent, the best thing you could do is force binary uh, choices, right? It's, it's, you're with us, you're against us. Um, the two-party system in the U.S. is is a disaster that way. And it's sort of rigged the system such that there is an enormous disadvantage to trying to displace those two. Any given election feels too consequential. Um, but it is the case that it's pretty shocking. It, it's, it's like, if I didn't do the research, I would be super skeptical. <laughs> like, we, I'll give you a, a concrete example. We, um, 
we did this, you know, study of aspirations people have for America, how Americans, what do you want the future of the country to be? Trade-off priorities. And before we, before we gave them the private opinion instrument, we just asked respondents point blank, are we more divided or united as a country? And not surprisingly, like, I think it was 82% said we're more divided. Like half of those people said we are extremely divided. And what was even worse is when you cut it by who you voted for in the previous election, this is back, um, you know, a couple of years ago, they both, a majority of both sides said the other side no longer shares their values for the country. And yet you put those same exact people into this trade-off instrument, private opinion, and it's ridiculous. Like, Like the amount of common ground like genuinely on the most important issues was pretty astounding. But again, they don't think that's true. And so because they believe that the other side, they believe that people hold views they don't really hold, they, we are seeing each other as the outgroup, right? As, as the other, rather than, hey, we, we hold the same values more or less. Like I said, there's a few things where there, there really are private disagreements, but they pale in comparison. And so here we are. It's certainly the case that when you see um, politicians espousing more moderate positions on things, you know, that are consistent, it's it's not terribly surprising that they do well. The problem is, is that two-party system and, and the sort of primary voting structures, especially on the right, that don't even require you get to a majority <laughs> to win a primary in the state incentivizes a super vocal fringe who get to end up nominating the people. So it's like you could win in the general, but you're never getting through the primary. Um, but I will say the proof is sort of in the, the p- putting here where in, in, in place after place, when things are put on the ballot and people can vote in private, it's pretty surprising, right? You know, whether it's, you know, Kansas voting for far, like in terms of protecting abortion rather than doubling down right after you have Roe v. Wade overturned. It's like, look, People privately, when they go in the voting booth, they, they're like, listen, I know you don't know what I'm what I'm choosing, so I'm going to vote a certain way. So I, I would just say it's not just in the States. You know, this is a, a, a problem across the across the globe. But, you know, again, the way out of it, it it's funny um, under collective illusions. If you try to persuade. It actually is proof to people that the illusion is real. And you can cause a lot of harm. Let me give you a concrete example of that, if you don't mind. And you can you can always shut me up anytime you want. Um, I'm I'm a reformed academic, so <laughs> this is this is brief for me. But um, so in the U.S. Uh, in the '90s, there was this. You probably remember the "Say No to Drugs" campaign. That um, <laughs> this is your brain on drugs. You know, any questions? You know, it's like, yeah, why is it a fried egg? I don't know, but you know, whatever. Um, so that came about because the government noticed a, a small increase in first-time drug use amongst teenagers in the U.S. And they they went ahead and spent about a billion dollars on an ad campaign, got the best advertising agencies in the country. And it was pretty successful from an advertising standpoint. The, the typical American teen saw three ads a day for six years. Now, the problem was, that the government just assumed that the reason kids were trying drugs is because they were interested in drugs. But there was private opinion data from the beginning that showed that wasn't true, that in fact, they were skeptical about drugs. What they wanted was to fit in. And they were under the illusion that most teens were doing drugs. Okay, so under that illusion, 
you blitz them with a billion dollars of ads trying to scare them straight. <clears throat> what they took from the ads were, this must be what we're doing, or else why would adults try so hard to get us to stop? And there's no kidding. As a result, it led to an increase in first-time drug use directly attributed to the campaign itself. So that you persuasion doesn't work when it's an illusion. Um, what does work is what's called social proof. And there's a handful of things we could talk about. But the point is, it's really critical. It's about revealing our shared values, not trying to convince someone. And if you get that right, history suggests you can unleash some pretty remarkable social change that otherwise seems unimaginable. We'll come to some of your solutions before we wrap up, but I just want to stay on the subject of politics and, and policymaking. We've had in both of our countries in recent years, some spectacular failures on the part of the, the polling industry in terms of just getting things wrong. In a world in which there's a growing gap between our private and public selves, how can policymakers devise public policy to reflect the kind of interests and needs and aspirations of their citizens? This is a huge problem, right? And, and I will say, <clears throat> in fairness to my, um, my friends in the polling business, <clears throat> it's hard work. And, and it's not, it's funny, the, f- the failures of these um, polls to predict the outcomes like they're supposed to, on the one hand, there's a, ho- there's a whole problem with sampling and, and who picks up phones. But let's set that aside and say, like they're working really hard and 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 their methodologies can solve for some of that and, and and it's good it's good work. The problem is if people aren't telling the truth, then it doesn't matter how good your methodologies there are. It doesn't matter how good your sampling is. It's they're not telling the truth. And so in the short term, you actually have to if you know there's social pressure attached to an issue. And, and we've developed a new metric we're coming out with this year that will consistently measure the amount of social pressure in a society. And because we just don't know any other way around it, short of helping everyone know, listen, social pressure has gone up this much, we should be careful. And we shouldn't trust what we're seeing in polls, we shouldn't, tr- you know, it, it, people probably are misrepresenting their views. So you got to rely on some of these other methodologies. Um, we, we, we have about half dozen that we, we like in particular, but th- there's, there's, there's other ones too, particularly when you're a politician and you're trying to do right by your constituents. It's funny looking back on it, you know, we're, we're probably the most famous now for this private opinion work. We didn't mean to, this isn't why we exist. We just, the world we want to live in requires us understanding what people really think. And so we did this reluctantly, but we got sucked into, you know, we, we're, we're, rapidly politically independent. Um, I guess at this point we're orphans, I think, politically, but um but we've we've ended up engaging across the political spectrum, you know, to the current White House um and Republican leaders saying, look, here's here's where your people really are. Um do with it what you want, but we have some, I think, moral responsibility to at least share that information. Um, so in the short term, you're gonna have to rely on some of these other methods. But what's funny is, is if I'm a vocal fringe, that's the last thing I want. The last thing I want. You know, I, I like it's pretty good right now that I can influence so many things when I don't, I know darn well my views aren't really representative. But the final thing, at the end of the day, there's really no getting out of this problem. It's a cultural problem, right? It's, it's especially in free societies. Look, 
no one's going to lock you up for your view, right? Like it's just the social reprimand that you're so afraid of. But we can solve for that if we actually commit to the very values. We, we've never been perfect at them, but but our democracies have been anchored in these fundamental values of respect for differing opinions and the commitment to free speech. If you do that and you create the norms that say, look, if all you want to do is conform, conforming is, is actually being honest about your views. Conforming is protecting the rights of someone you disagree with to speak up. That's the work we have to do. And that's the work at Populous we care a lot about because the methodologies, I'm glad we have them, but they are a band-aid, right? They are not a solution to the problem. One final question, and then I promise we will get to those solutions. I mentioned self-silencing earlier, and and you mentioned in the book and in your accompanying commentary that there is a relationship between these collective illusions and the rise of so-called cancel culture. Do you want to just elaborate on that point? and what you think the consequences are of a culture of self-silencing. Yeah, so look, first of all, in terms of the consequence, free societies don't work. They just don't work when when we can't be honest with each other. You know, I mean, look, the whole point of a democracy is to have constructive disagreement. If we if we all thought the same, you wouldn't need a democracy. <laughs> like so so it's supposed to adjudicate differences and things like that. So the the thing is the thing that's so insidious about cancel culture, and again, I think it's overblown, but it is real. So let's, let's you know, I'm not going to blame everything on it, but the idea of the threat of social and economic sanction for holding a wrong opinion, which is just kind of outrageous, like really outrageous, that, that it's sort of like, you should lose your livelihood because you disagree with me. That's the thing that's so problematic about that is it will kickstart the the preference falsification right it will it's not enough for me to say nothing i have to say what you want me to say i have to perform whatever you want me to perform and then the problem is is that starts to accelerate really quickly a perception that more people hold this view all right so then everyone that's like oh, i'm just not gonna say anything then if i can get away with it well you go quiet and now all we're hearing from are the people who are the vocal fringe and the people who are lying about their views. And then it, they'll solidify these illusions in ways that are very hard to, to uproot. Um, and so it's, it's, they go hand in hand that way. Um, and to me, it's like, once you realize that, that someone can be not even a good person, someone can have really wrong views, but number one, you've never converted someone by silencing them ever. Um, and it always blows up in your face eventually. But second, the incredible societal consequences in terms of our inability to get anything done, to cooperate. So it, it's so disastrous that we should see it for what it is. It is unacceptable that we allow any economic or social coercion in terms of people's ability to be honest about their their private views. It just nobody wins there except for a very, very vocal fringe. The book's final chapter outlines how you think we can break free from collective illusions. Do you want to unpack your thinking about a path to closing the gap between our private and public selves? Yeah, and we've touched on it a little and it'll sound almost simplistic because it is simple, but it's really important, which is once you recognize that these illusions are not being done to us necessarily, right? Like we, the people are the ones that are self-silencing 
or falsifying our preferences. So only we, the people, can actually do something about that. That's the bad news. It's also the good news. And, you know, in the book, I tried to show that what was called for is it's it's less about some mass courage that you're putting. You just have to learn to be a little congruent, right? Recognizing that that if you can't trust your brain to to tell you about what your group thinks, it's really in nobody's best interest that you lie about your views to to be what you think the group thinks because it's a coin toss whether you're right or wrong to begin with. <laughs> and I tried to show ways that people could could be more congruent without putting themselves at risk. <clears throat> but, you know, I ended the book with what I think is probably, for me, the most important example of what's possible in terms of social change if you recognize that illusions are at the heart of most of our problems and you take steps to both have the moral courage to be honest about your own views and the civic courage to make it safe for other people to do so. And for me, that's the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia. And, you know, just briefly, for those that don't know, it, it's it's an incredible example where a people overthrew an authoritarian regime, a, a communistic regime, without anybody losing their life. And it was happening in contemporary times when, like, mass bloodshed in other areas that tried to do something similar, Right. And what was so special about that Velvet Revolution is who led it. And, you know, it, it wasn't a military leader. It wasn't even a politician at the time. It was a poet and a playwright named Václav Havel. And what I love about it is Havel, and just unless I forget, I'll tell for listeners, if you've never read Power of the Powerless, which is uh, a manifesto that Václav wrote, it's freely available online. It it will change your life. It is 80 pages. It's as though he's writing it right now for today. It's it's like shockingly contemporary. But he talks about, you know, he had written um, a satire called The Garden Party because he was a playwright. And it was just skewers communism. But he was so subtle to get it to, to, get it made, well, to the censors that censors didn't even know they were being made fun of. And yet, it was basically the Hamilton of its time, sold out all the time. And he said he sat there and he, and he watched the audience night after night. So they laughed at all the right parts. So they laughed at things you would not find funny if you privately agreed with communism. And so he comes to the conclusion that it's the problem isn't that people agree with this, it's that they think everybody agrees with it. So they're going along and that, that the Soviet system had taught them the dangers of being like having authenticity and that it was protective just to, just to like, what am I supposed to say? Say what you should say. Never, ever, ever reveal your honest opinions. And so he realizes that if that's true, he didn't use the word collective illusions because that's not what they called it back then. Um, but he said, like, if, that, if, if these illusions are at the heart of the problem, then the solution was this authenticity, this personal responsibility. And he goes about building all, he called them small works all these places where people could learn to be more congruent and they were not big, like political areas. It was like literally like literary publications and stuff like that, where it's just get back in the habit. And what's so fascinating, he was roundly mocked. Like, it was just like, are you kidding me? Like, you're not going to, you don't have any weapons. You don't have a military. You don't even have a political party. And yet you think you're going to wrestle power away from (laughs) a totalitarian regime. Come on. Like, and yet, 
you know, it's funny, even, even Voslov didn't fully appreciate how fast the change could happen because there was a collective illusion. In fact, a few months before the student protests that would really unleash the, the revolution happened, um, he was interviewed in an international magazine and he said something to the effect that, um, that he was in it for the long haul, the revolution was important, but that we had to be patient and that he didn't think he would live to see the, the full manifestation. Only a few months later, he was the first democratically elected president of a free Czechoslovakia. And so, look, I say that because it, if, if a poet can overthrow communism, just think what we can do in the States, in Canada, these a free people with a culture that, is so, that historically has, has tried to elevate diversity and pluralism and respect for each other, even not perfectly. Like, imagine what we can accomplish because our problems are not what we think they are. Our problems are not that we are privately impossibly divided on everything that matters. Our problem is that we believe we are. Our problem is a collective illusion. And, and if we can recognize that fact and realize that the way forward is not persuasion, it's social proof, right? It's creating the conditions for us to reveal our shared values to each other uh, and charting a better way forward. I, I actually think the future is pretty bright. Like we can get somewhere qualitatively better um, as democracies. And the problem is if we don't, like history would suggest, this thing ends really badly. Well, what a fascinating conversation about a fascinating book, Collective Illusions, Conformity, Complicity, and the Science of Why We Make Bad Decisions. Todd Rose, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.